going to turn it up a smidge. Yeah, there. How's that? Good? Okay. We'll start off with the science fact, as is our custom. Why do we do science facts? Well, they're encouraging to us. That's for sure. And I think they cause us to focus on and contemplate God's creation, which causes us to glorify and worship Him. Did you know that um, the number one reason young people leave the faith is because they believe evolution? I mean, that's a pretty established fact. Uh, they get, they may, they may have been pretty solid, and then uh, they get to somewhere in school, and someone tells them this uh, somewhat convincing-sounding story, and says it with the authority of the, its truth. And frankly, um, would intend to intimidate them if they don't accept it. And so, there's a lot of people who bail out on their faith at a pretty early age, and it's because of evolution. That's a reason that we need to uh, drive home as often as we can the wonders of God's creation. Amen? Here's one we're going to talk about today. Do any of you know what this most complex, this is secular science, says most complex known object in the universe? The brain. The human brain is the most complex known object in the universe, and that isn't coming from uh, creationist websites. That comes from secular websites. You can look it up. We don't know of anything. We don't know of anything more complex in the entire universe than that three and a half pound thing that's in your cranium right now. It's an absolute marvel. Um, Dennis, you might be old enough to remember this. Uh, they used to say, well, our brain's like a switchboard. It's like a telephone switchboard. Remember that? Yeah. Are you that old? You're not that much younger than me, so you've got to re be able to remember some of that. That's what they thought. They thought, well, it's like a telephone switchboard. And then they said, well, no, it's, it's like a calculator. And then they said, well, no, it's like a computer. And then they said, well, no, it's like a supercomputer. And actually, the more we learn and know about the brain, the more, uh, frankly, embarrassing each of those uh, descriptions becomes because our brain, it, our brain isn't even comparable to any of those. It's so far beyond any of those things. The, the most powerful man-made computing would take 40 minutes, 40 minutes to process what your brain can process in one second. One second. Each neuron in your brain can send a thousand signals per second. An average human brain contains 200 billion nerve cells and they're connected to one another through trillions and trillions of synapses. It's a little bridge space for the, at the neurotransmitters. A single human brain 
has more information processing units than all the computers, routers, and internet connections on the entire earth. One human brain. If we could make a computer processor that could process at the speed the brain would, it would take 10 megawatts, that's 10 million watts of power to run it. Your brain runs on less than 10 watts of power. So it's not only incredibly complex, it's so efficient you can't, you can't even imagine it. Your brain, like the pathways inside your brain are what electrical engineers try to achieve and can never achieve in terms of just condensing something down to its simplest. Even the, uh, you know, we think of things that we do for granted, take for granted when we do them, involve millions and millions and millions of nerve firings. You know, if you think about an outfielder catching a ball or fielding a grounder, or if you think about uh, a batter swinging at a pitched ball, there's so much going on there because you know the, the brain is actually has to like get out ahead of where they are. It can't just it can't just process the thing it sees at the instant. It has to say, well, this is where the ball is going to be <laughs> in a little bit. <laughs> I mean, nothing man-made does that. And we do it without even thinking about it. But we should think about it. We should think about it in a sense we should glorify God. Amen? We say it all the time. Psalm 139, I will praise him for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, if anybody wasn't here last week, and even if you were, we'll just review a little bit. We went to 1 Samuel 15 last week to talk about obedience. Remember it? Uh, it was a story of Saul. It's a tragic story of Saul, actually. Samuel got the word from the Lord and said, you are to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what did they do? Well, they didn't quite utterly destroy the Amalekites. That's what it boiled down to. They destroyed most of the Amalekites, right? All but one guy, the king. And uh, they weren't really willing to put the all those beautiful sheep and oxen to the sword. And God had told them, utterly destroy it. Now I said last week, and I'll say it again here, I'm not going to get into the fairness or unfairness of, utterly, of utter destruction. Alright? It's in the Word. Read it. I didn't make it up. That's what God said. And it's what Saul and the people did not do. And the principle, the takeaway, a takeaway from last week, there were a few, I hope. But one of them is, partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Doing 98% of what we were told to do is failing to do what we were told to do. I'm just giving you God's economy on this thing, right? I stress this, I think, at the end. We can't... We can't willingly hang on to keep the king alive. We can't willingly hang on to the 
fat sheep and the fat oxen that we think have value, if it's something we know the Lord told us, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Put it away. Be done with it. Get it out of your life. And you know, God doesn't entrust care of things to disobedient people. He took the kingship away from Saul. Took the kingship away from Saul based on what happened in that chapter we read last week. He wants our whole heart. Today I want to talk about maybe a sister or parallel thing which is discipline. The, the types of it, the end objectives of it. And uh, I'm going to tell you this is my third sermon in a week so if I'm a little so forgive me Monty if I get something backwards alright <laughs> um, I want to talk about discipline before we dive into some scripture about it I want to make a distinction uh, between three, three different things that I think are often mixed up I hear them, do you guys know what the word conflated means? It means like you, you substitute one thing for another one. And we shouldn't, because they're different. Um, and those three things are consequences, punishment, and discipline. Alright? Now what do I mean by that? Consequences are just what naturally will follow doing something or sometimes failing to do something. What do I mean by that? If I got up on the roof and jumped off, there will be consequences. I'm going to have, at best, a broken bone or two, possibly worse. If I put my hand out and touch something very hot, consequence, I'm going to get burned. Wasn't the devil. Wasn't God's judgment. It was, it's a natural consequence. Does that distinction make sense? If we don't eat, eventually we'll starve. That's just a natural consequence. And I'm drawing the line of distinction between that and punishment. And punishment, I think we often conflate with discipline, and I think discipline is a companion to punishment, but it's a different thing. I just want to be sure we're clear on the distinction. Punishment is punitive, and it means... Uh, you're, you're paying a debt or giving retribution for something you did. P punishment is backwards looking. It means, we say, we say it all the time, you committed a crime, you, owe, you have a debt to society. And once you've paid your debt to society, well then, that thing is, is done. The punishment has been meted out, it's over. Is this, am I making sense here? It's, it's not, we don't get punished for something we haven't done yet. At least we shouldn't. Uh, we, should, we shouldn't be, and we shouldn't be doing any punishing for something that hasn't happened yet. Punishment is retrospective. It's backward looking. Discip and, and, and by the way, one more distinction. Um, punishment is, is a fairness thing. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fairness thing. And it is really, if you want to think of it, it's for the benefit of the party or parties who were harmed paid your debt to society. What was your debt to society? You committed a crime against society and this is, we're going to extract uh, we're going to extract justice out of this situation. Alright? Discipline is always forward looking. 
Discipline isn't retrospective, it's prospective, it's forward-looking. We don't invest, uh, we don't invest discipline into something that's not going to be, some, something or someone that's not going to be around, all right? We're, in, we're making that investment because we're trying to shape or set a course for something that hasn't happened yet. So we got the distinction. Consequences, kick the door hard, break your toe, you know? Punishment is retrospective. It's, it's a price being paid or extracted for something that was done, a crime committed, a mistake made. Discipline is always forward-looking. Last week, we were, when we were in 1 Samuel 15, uh, we... Uh, Samuel came and when he, when he told um, when he told Saul he was quoting the Lord to Saul and he said I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them on the way out of Egypt. Now, this may sound a little corny but bear with me. The Amalekites weren't about to be disciplined. Alright? They were about to be obliterated. There was no forward-looking discipline that was aimed at bringing them to a certain place or steering their future outcome or anything like that. They're being punished, pure and simple. God said, you harmed my people and the judgment, the punishment on you is that you, you will be utterly destroyed. It's a, just an example of the distinction between punishment and discipline. We're, we're going to see this several places. Now, these can be intertwined a little bit. Certainly it's true that natural consequences uh, can train us in and of their own selves. All right? we, we can learn, that's hot. I burned myself. I'm not going to do that again. And, the, and the, the, uh, the, the correction was like built into the consequence. But it wasn't something needed out. It was just the natural process. I think when I was a kid, um, in fact, I'm sure of this, um, I think usually the discipline that I received uh, was in conjunction with punishment. Does that make sense? There, were, there was a kind of discipline where um, it was simply my parents instructing me, and we have, there's a lot of parents here, you know, you're doing this with your kids. You're not necessarily punishing them about anything, you're just trying to help them establish a habit or set a course in the direction they're going. And, and there's, there's this, what is that? It's discipline. As we go along, it's discipline. For me, I connotated discipline with punishment quite a bit because usually I had done something wrong and there was a price to be paid for it. There was a, some, there was a, there was punishment for my, my misbehavior or whatever it was. And, and I don't think it was till I was older that I, that I started to see this distinction like, no, all of the discipline I received wasn't in hand-in-hand hand with punishment, okay? 
And when we see a parent, for instance, meeting out only punishment without discipline, well, there's something wrong with that. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, a passage out of Hebrews. We've been there several times in the past, I know. But it's so germane to what we're talking about here. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to start with verse 5. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. This is Hebrews 12, starting verse 5. And this is, this is out of uh, two quotes here. One is out of Proverbs and one is out of Psalms. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's probably the best scriptural summary. What is the end goal of discipline? It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, You know, Proverbs says to not discipline is to hate your son. It's Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You guys know this, I think. Um, it doesn't seem that it would be this way, but it absolutely is true. Children thrive where they know they're disciplined, where they know there are boundaries, because innately, I believe, even though they couldn't put it into these words, children know that when someone cares enough about them to discipline them, that it is a demonstration of love. You know? Um, they're, they're, the world, by and large, wouldn't largely see it that way, by the way. But, but what they think about disciplining children is uh, mostly gobbledygook. And it's to be strongly avoided because the, we have the instruction manual right here. This, this isn't just about children. There's an absolute analogy between our relationship as an earthly father with our child or mother with child, parenting children, to what happens to us as sons and daughters of God. Right? Exact parallel. Exact parallel. When we, when we start off with, a, let's take 
uh, little Lily, who's back in Massachusetts or somewhere right now. We have a granddaughter about that same age. She'll be one in a couple of weeks. Um, they are just at the very start. I mean, they're not, they're not capable of self-discipline at all. They will be someday, but they're, they're not capable of any self-discipline as they're, as, as they're infants. And what are we doing all the time with them? Making these little course corrections, little course corrections, showing them, teaching them, training them by example. But what is the ultimate downstream objective? Kyle and Jess, I mean, what's the objective in rearing your kids? Or <clears throat> Here's what it is. It's that they reach maturity with self-discipline. We don't want, no parent wants to be hovering over their uh, adolescent son, who, which is now, by the way, deemed to extend into your mid-30s, adolescence, uh, American, uh, what is it, this, this psychiatrist? No, I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. They believe adolescence extends into the mid-30s now, which is tragic. But we, as parents, we don't want an adolescent for life. We don't want a toddler for life. Yeah, we enjoy the season. We enjoy the time of the life. But your objective for your son is to be a mature man, right? That you don't have to coddle. That you don't have to follow around. That you don't have to remind every two minutes how to behave, what to say, what to do, not to forget this, you know? I'll just interject it's my observation that mothers are very prone to want to prevent their children from having consequences. And I think one of the roles of fathers is to let the children have the consequences sometimes, all right? That's not, a, that's not meant to divide anything. It's just my honest observation. We've got to make, sure, make sure Johnny doesn't forget his coat. He might get cold. Dad says, let him get cold. Let him get cold. He'll remember his coat tomorrow. We can learn from those consequences. We don't want to be ever found negligent either as parents doing disciplining because it's our, it's our, it's our responsibility before the Lord. All right? And this isn't aimed, please understand, this isn't aimed at anybody sitting here right now. I think I've shared when Peg and I first uh, visited and, and were around this church, one of the things that really struck us was, wow, there's a lot of well-behaved kids here. And that is a tremendous, um, <laughs> it's a tremendous testament to some good parenting. We, we appreciate it. You guys know uh, misbehaved or out-of-control kids are not much fun to be around. They're really not much fun to be around. And what's sad is, for the most part, it's not their, it's not their fault. It's their parents' fault. It's their parents' fault because they have not trained them. What's the end objective? We can start, how big's Lily? This big. Our granddaughter Jenny, she's this big. What's the objective when they're grown? That they are self-disciplined, that they don't have to be reminded. 
And not only that, but that self-discipline has turned into habits of obedience that are motivated by love. A lot of times when we're in the early part of child rearing, it takes a little bit of this to drive home the point. Understand what I'm saying? And there is a healthy fear, I don't know an easier word to say, that a son will have toward his dad because he understands this person is in authority over me and this person can administer punishment to me uh, if, if, if I deserve it. All right? But there is a transition time with our children. There's supposed to be. Let's put it that way. There should be this transition. And that is, we went from their obedience was motivated by fear of punishment to their obedience is motivated by love. And I just want to present to you guys, that is exactly how it should be between us and the Lord. That our, that our obedience should be a matter of evidencing our love. Now it might start out, it might have some fear base till habits are formed because we serve a fearful God who, who has the power and who has the authority to mete out punishment. We're not dwelling on that, but we're just saying it's the same, it's the same transition for us. I don't think we can I don't think we can come to the Lord without a recognition of his awesome nature and that he is so far above us and that he is so much more powerful than us and that he has the prerogative to to do with us as he chooses there's some fear based in that all right there's some genuine Fear, there's no other there's no other real way to say it but he doesn't want a relationship with us based out of fear nor do we want that with our kids we don't want a fear relationship I can remember a time probably when I would have said oh yeah that was a big part of my relationship with my father with my earthly father was I knew that he would hold me accountable and there was some just plain old fear but I, never, but I never was scared of him. Does that make sense? And by the way, I heard, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, resenting the punishment they had as kids. I think I can honestly say I, would, I don't ever remember resenting punishment as a kid. Because somehow, Ryan, I knew I had it coming. You know what I mean? I mean, I really did. I, I don't ever remember thinking, this is not fair. You know, I'm being punished unfairly. Uh, and, there, and maybe there are people here who were. I'm not making light of it if you were. But I would say, uh, no, most of the time, I knew exactly why I was being punished. And I knew that I 100% deserved it. So it didn't seem unfair to me at all. It didn't make it pleasant. You know, it didn't make it any fun. 
but it, but I wasn't in rebellion uh, toward the idea that I could be punished. And I and I think that I innately knew um, that it was a demonstration of love and what the end objective was. Now you know, I want to talk about self discipline and self-control for a minute. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, the ninth chapter. Because I think there's an important thing for us to understand. If the end objective is for us to be self-controlled or self-disciplined, I mean, we read it, I read it at, uh, at Joe's memorial service, Galatians 5.22, fruit of the Spirit. What's one of the fruit of the Spirit? self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that sounds to me like the Spirit has something to do with it. Right? There's such a thing as self-discipline that's apart from the spiritual realm. You know that, right? We're going to look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's go to verse... Uh, first of all, let's go to verse 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Everything about self-discipline and self-control it's not spiritual. You know, we, we have some examples around us. Look at Tom Brady. What is he, 42? He's playing, he's playing high-level NFL football against guys half his age. And he's in better shape than some of them. But you know why? Self-discipline. That guy is... Uh, probably beyond religious about what goes into his mouth, about his daily routine, about, about how he works out, about how he exercises, about how he stays fit. Um, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying all of us have this God-given ability that through self-discipline and, and the control of what we do, we're capable of achieving very, very remarkable things, whether it's academically or with, whether it's athletically. It's probably safe to say there are very few really high-level athletes that don't have a, a very, very good uh, up-close-and-personal understanding of self-discipline, self-control. When it says it's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, well, that's something different. Uh, Tom Brady's self-control isn't a fruit of the Spirit. I pretty much guarantee you that. All right? That's by dint of human resolve and human willpower, what he's doing. I think when, we, uh, when it becomes a fruit of the Spirit, it means that God's Spirit, which is indwelling us, we are consciously aligning with God's Spirit so that God's Spirit forms in us the habit of, of self-control and obedience. Does that make sense? Sound too weird? It's not meant to sound weird. It's what God intended for us. What God intended for us. We can go right on, because Paul was giving that example. I'm still in 1 Corinthians uh, 9. 
Um, he gave the example about those who compete in a race, and they and and it's always for it's always for a goal, right? I mean, why does Tom Brady do what he does? He wants to win the Super Bowl. I mean, there's a distinct goal. I like I, I want to be the best at this. I want to I want to win gold at the Olympics, or I want to, or maybe if it's a an academic achievement, I want a I want to get a certain kind of job. I want a certain type of career. There's a goal. There's a goal. Paul says this, and starting in verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Hmm. You know, it sounds to me like there's a little bit of uh, effort involved in that. What do you guys think? We have to be careful, and it's easy for someone to say, "Oh, this sounds like this sounds like a works doctrine." It's not a works doctrine. This is what the word says. How much of how much of our effort? is involved in self-control and self-discipline. That level of maturity that God is calling us to that he expects of his mature sons and daughters. So let's turn to 2 Peter. I want to, turn, I want to look at the first chapter of 2 Peter. Remember, what's my question? Does this involve our? Does this involve effort on our part? The spiritual self-discipline, spiritual self-control, habit of obedience before the Lord, involve effort on our part. Here's what Second Peter, chapter one, verse starting with verse five says: For this reason, make every effort. I highlighted that. To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. Now everyone here understands we're not going to achieve righteousness by dint of our own hard effort and exercise. We understand that, right? But what does God plan for us? What does He what does God want? He doesn't want he doesn't want spiritual toddlers. He doesn't want spiritual adolescents. He wants mature sons and daughters. That's his end objective. Just like our end objective as earthly parents is to see our children to, to maturity, going on their own, without us hovering over them, without us reminding them every five seconds. Sometimes it seems like that in the early going. That's how those habits are formed, though. You know that? I mean, how many times have we seen this? It takes a lot of repetition. And then one day, it happens by habit. And that's the beautiful thing about forming good habits. Everything just gets easier and easier and easier. Something that was difficult for us to do before we established it as a habit 
later on. We can do it without even thinking about it. It doesn't even, it doesn't even cross our mind that it was once difficult for us. That's a pattern that, that is applied to parents raising children. It's also a pattern that applies to our spiritual growth in the Lord. All right? I've said this probably from up here before. I absolutely believe it. When we come to Christ, a miraculous thing happens. The bondage, the stranglehold that sin had over us is severed. I know people who don't believe that, but I do, and I, and I say it on the authority of God's Word. But, <laughs> the forming of our habits, the forming of new habits, the forming of godly habits, that sanctification process, we have a little bit to do with that. We have some responsibility in that. We had nothing to do with having our sins washed away. Nothing we could possibly ever do. Deserved it, earned it, in any way, shape, or form. But, on the, but God is not going to reach down and magically take us from infancy to maturity absent involvement on our part. It's that simple. It's that simple. Make every effort. That's what Second Peter says. Make every effort. We're told this more than once in Scripture to be diligent about it, to work hard at it, to be, be careful about it. There's, there's aspects of it that are simply... They're, they're for us to um, they're for us to do before the Lord. That, I, I don't know an easier way to say it. Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what First Samuel 15 said. Obedience is better than sacrifice. What did he mean? He meant, God doesn't want your burnt offering. He wants you to do what he asked you to do in the first place, what he told you to do in the first place. What is our objective with child rearing? What is God's objective with bringing us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? Isn't it the same thing? He wants obedience. He wants obedience that's motivated I love. That's the eventual goal. That it's that we formed a habit of being obedient. I want to read a few more scriptures, and then we're going to wrap up. We turn to Proverbs. Proverbs has so much to say about this topic, and we're not going to even touch on all of them. I, I want to highlight a few. Third chapter of Proverbs, first of all. Starting with the 11th verse. My son, 
Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is where the this is where that passage in Hebrews 12, this is what it was quoting, was this, was this uh, scripture from Proverbs. Turn over to the 12th chapter of Proverbs. The very first verse, whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's New American Standard says it's stupid. It's pretty blunt. There's a lot of people who won't tolerate discipline. They don't want anything to do with it because it cramps their style. And they and if someone tries to impose any discipline on them or draw them to any discipline, they're going to push back against it. That's why I'm back to first Samuel fifteen. What did what did it say right after um, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is witchcraft. That's what it says. And what is rebellion? Rebellion is, I purposely going to disobey. I knew what I was supposed to do, and I'm choosing not to do it. That's what we don't want from our kids. Right? don't want rebellion from our kids. There are a lot of people who think, well, it's just, you know, that's just how kids are. and You know, they'll all, they'll all be that way and they always will be that way and there's nothing that can really be done about it. That's not true. That's not true. And, and having an attitude like that could make us pretty lax about carrying out our responsibility as parents. Let's flip over to uh, chapter 25 of Proverbs. This is why, this is talking about a man. It's, uh, it's true of kids as well. Chapter, or chapter 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's a pretty chaotic picture. This says a man, I would say, same is true of a child. And we've all experienced being around a child that's out of control. Boy, is that a horrible place to be. It's a, it just makes my skin crawl when I'm around it. Because well, oftentimes I'm thinking of, of the parents do you understand that God views what's happening here right now as witchcraft? <laughs> and are you going to do something about it? Or are you going to let... You guys have seen it happen. I've, I've, I've been in a situation where a two-year-old kid has ten adults at bay because the adult who should won't take care of what should be taken care of. You know, it's completely upside down and inside out for a two-year-old to be dressing down a room full of adults. That ought not be. But 
They will, if they're allowed to. Peg and I, we, we chuckle sometimes. We just observe, you know, we have, a, we have 11 grandchildren. And if I could back up for a minute, I will confess to you guys, before any of our kids were married, before we had any grandchildren, I can remember saying to Peg many times, I do not know what I will do. I don't know how I would react or how I would behave if our children were negligent in raising their children. Like, I don't know how I would be. I don't want to I don't want that to happen. And I will just say, by God's grace, we have not had to deal with that. And boy, are we, or boy, are we thankful. Because it, it, it's very difficult. It's, it's very difficult if it's, a, if it's someone you don't know. I think it's even more difficult if it's someone you do know. Does that make sense? We, we were, we have observed that within the spectrum of 11 grandkids, and you can see this, you guys have two, you'll see this, they're different, or three or four, you know, you just, we saw it. There are different degrees of, of uh, frankly, how much discipline is needed. You know, I know when, when Peg and I had our first son, I remember thinking, oh, great, well, now I know what our kids are going to be like. And then our daughter came, we said, whoa, this is completely different. <laughs> and then another son came, we said, oh, different again, They're all unique. Within our grandkids, I know that there are some that pose bigger challenges to their parents than others. And there's even, there's even a granddaughter that we've said, we are so glad you were born to the parents you were born to uh, because if you hadn't been born to someone who had gotten a, a hold of you pretty young, it would be a disaster. She was strong-willed. Is that safe to say? She's a lovely, she's a lovely young lady today. But man, she came out ready to be in charge and ready to tell everybody their place. And uh, her parents, I can remember them standing in our kitchen uh, one time saying, does this ever... <laughs> they were literally like... Oof. Give us some encouragement that we're going to get through this. <laughs> because they literally felt like all we're doing every day is administering discipline over and over and over and over. And I remember talking to them and saying, don't give up. Don't give up. And thankfully, they didn't give up. And... Uh, and I'm not up there bragging about grandkids or kids or anything. I'm just saying, if you follow God's path and pattern that's set forth 
His promises are true. You know? We're not, we're not going to encounter a situation where God's plan or promise doesn't work. You always have to keep that in mind. Because you'll, you'll talk to people who will say, well, I tried that, but it didn't work. Well, really? Let's watch you try it again. Because God's word says, this is what it says right here. And that's what I'm going to hang my hat on. That's where I'm going to put my trust. That's where I'm going to put my faith. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control. Ultimately, what Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What does God want from us? He wants willing obedience. Motivated by love. Not reluctant obedience. Not partial obedience. Not sort of obedience with a bad attitude attached to it. That wholehearted obedience motivated by love. That's his goal. All right. I'm going to put a wrap on it. Thank you for your patience. And uh, Dennis, I'm going to hand things over to you for communion, please.